Hey everybody, it's Adam Farkas. Welcome to another edition of ODYR Radio. With me as usual is Paul Farkas. Hi everyone. And it's a beautiful fall day here in Portland. Amazingly, it's not raining for once, so we're having a great time here. Um, and uh, Paul, today we have a great show for you all about dry eye. But before we get into the topic, I just wanted to thank our sponsor for today. And our sponsor is Oculus. And Oculus has actually been a sponsor of ODYR going for how many years? Five years? Six years? Yeah, at least. Yeah. So, so back when we were very, very small, Oculus was one of the first companies to actually come on and advertise with us. And we really appreciate it. Um, you know, Oculus is interesting. They, they make these very high-tech instruments from Germany. But when you deal with a company here in the U.S., you feel like you're dealing with a very small company. Um, you know, their U.S. division is actually, it's, it's in Seattle, actually, not too far from here. And it's actually great dealing with them because you feel like you're dealing with a small business. And if you're on ODYR, you know that Joel and Michael from Oculus are always on the site mixing it up. So thanks again to Oculus for helping us out today. Now, business aside, let's, let's get on with the talk. So today we are very, very fortunate to have the great Art Epstein with us. Um, and instead of me doing the introduction, I think, Paul, it would be appropriate if you did it, since I guess you and Art have a history. Oh, do we have? Do we go way back? <laughs> <laughs> Art, of course, is known to everyone, basically uh, from optometric physician. You, you hear uh, his uh, opinions. He's, he's very free with opinions on, on his, the editorials for optometric physician. But in addition to that, Art is an extremely well-known speaker and clinician. And his area of interest and love is uh, dry eyes and ocular surface disease. And that's what we're going to be talking about. There will be no politics today. So for those of you that are interested in politics, this is not the program for you. We're not talking about board certification? Nothing. Well, a board what? Uh, I'm, so, I'm so depressed. <laughs> <laughs> more, <laughs> more, you know, what, I'm what, relieved. <laughs> what's, really, what's really wonderful is, you know, Art and, and I go back a long, long way. I know Art from his very beginnings. Uh, when he got out of school, he... Uh, Opened up a practice, and he was brave enough to open up cold in in the New York metropolitan area, which very few uh, practitioners had the guts to do. And amazingly enough, he opened up in an office building that uh, was our in our suburban practice over thirty years ago. And um, Art and I were neighbors. He was two floors down in this office building, so I know Art for a long, long time, and it's a real pleasure to have him here today. So uh, with that, I, I want to just start off uh, with one question, and then we can go from there. You know, at your stage of the game, you probably got an invitation from AARP by now. <laughs> <laughs> and and most, people at the <laughs> most people at that particular stage of the game don't think about opening a practice cold. Uh, they think in terms of maybe associating, where in your case, uh, there should be a lineup of people that would want you in their practice with them, or you could even be teaching. Uh, so, so the question is, uh, why did you want to open up this practice? And can you describe your practice a little bit, where it's located and its demographics? Sure, that, that's a great question. Well, first, thank you for having me. Uh, thanks to Oculus for sponsoring this, and uh, Paul, you and I do go back a long way, uh, and and as I said, in a, in a very very good way. I have some very fond memories of uh, of, uh, of Roslyn and that office building, which, by the way, was the best location in the area. Um, I, I think to answer your question, the the, the first. Um, the first word that has to be addressed is sane practitioners opening uh, practices. So, <laughs> some, people, 
some people have actually suggested that somewhere along the line I've I've lost my mind. But uh, no, I, I, actually it was it was a uh, a decision that took uh, a considerable amount of thought. It was very carefully done. Uh, as you know, I'm I'm married to uh, my lovely colleague, uh, Dr. Shannon Steinhauser, who is a little bit younger than I am, and uh, that was certainly part of it. Uh, I had anticipated, as, as you uh, as you so eloquently said, uh, ending up in academia. Uh, but uh, you know, I also have that entrepreneurial streak, uh, and uh, uh, I had the opportunity to actually do it again and do it right. Uh, I really love optometry. I've you know uh, had an amazing ride. Um, you know, I could spend hours just talking about the, you know, the wonderful things that I've done uh, in optometry, and um, I had a chance to build uh, essentially a dream practice. So uh, we looked for quite some time in Phoenix. Uh, we live in an area that we like, and uh, looked around for office space. Uh, wanted a private, independent practice. We found uh, a location in a hospital compound, actually very close uh, to where we live. Uh, it's great because, you know, I figure at, at my age, being in a hospital compound means that they can uh, wheel me right over in case anything happens. So there's a little bit of safety. Uh, we're in a medical building. Uh, we got an ideal space. Uh, we have a uh, glass front, uh, ultra-modern office so that patients going to see other physicians uh, in the building see our office. Um, Shannon designed an incredible logo uh, using crowdsourcing, and uh, you know that's visible from the window. Uh, uh, state-of-the-art instrumentation. Uh, in fact, we uh, have a, an Oculus Keratic or F, uh, uh, 5M, you know, which is a perfect example of that in keeping with the sponsor, uh, which I absolutely love. And uh, it's it's just it's amazing. It's just I could not if I was going to you know dream the most pleasant dream of creating a practice. Uh, this is exactly what the dream would be, and uh, I just saw you know, two amazing, you know, complex patients today. Uh, Phoenix is filled with uh, dry eye patients, so you know, it's uh, I, for me. This is, in a sense, a retirement strategy. Maybe a little bit less traveling, uh, a little bit more focus on clinical care that I love, and uh, you know, I can uh, I can slow down as I get more intensely focused on on that. So that's the thinking. Great. And, and you know, you just brought up something very important. You talked about dry eye and Phoenix being one of the great dry eye centers of the country. Um, can, you, can you sort of tell us or give us the demographics or statistics all about dry eye throughout the country? Oh, you know, that's, that's a great question, Adam. And uh, I think everyone recognizes the fact that dry eye is a major issue. It's one of the primary reasons for uh, eye care office visits today. Uh, it's also a growing demographic. It's associated with aging, as everyone knows, with uh, medications. And these days, uh, you know, literally spend five minutes taking the medication list. That's after they check in online. So uh, all of the factors that weigh in favor of dry eye, including relocating to places like Phoenix and Denver and uh, Albuquerque, they're all here. So it's growing. So, it, you know, traditionally people say, oh, it's a third of the population. In, in Phoenix, it's probably 60, 60% of the population. And the best part of it is this is literally classic, um, right out of the book of optometry. We're very patient-centric as a profession. Uh, these patients can be helped, especially with the advances we have today. And uh, it's an amazing opportunity for optometry. And it's really unprecedented because instead of the grab bag of drops, most of which did the same thing, which was very little that we used to hand out, asking the patient to tell us what worked, now we can target specific therapies, and it's only going to get better from here. 
right? So what actually has changed since you and Paul might have been, you know, back in the olden days when you first started? What's what's changed with dry eye? Well, the first thing is we no longer pump the chairs up and down. That's uh, <laughs> really. <laughs> there, there are very few people I mean, listening who even understand what that joke means. But my, uh, my, my pink, you know, my pink refracting area is gone. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe it'll come back soon. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, yeah, things are considerably different. But well, well, first of all, um, you know, and that's the, another great question. First of all. We naturally, we've had literally an explosion in our understanding of of dry eye and the ocular surface. Uh, we understand that the, the ocular surface and the tear film are uh, intimately related, and you can't separate one from the other. I mean, just you know, two seconds of you know clinical perspective. So, so uh, essentially. I see the tear film as a as a structure very much uh, similar to a house. It has a foundation, and and you know it's like the poured concrete foundation of a strong house, and that's uh, the mic, uh, microvilli, which adds surface area, the glycocalyx, which actually converts the normally hydrophobic epithelial cells of the cornea into hydrophilic, uh, uh, water-loving uh, uh, surface. Uh, and we have uh, transmembrane mucins, which actually anchor into that, and then we have gel-forming mucins, which form the walls and the studding, very much like a house would have. And then we have the roof, which is, as and I think most people know where I'm going, which is the lipid layer, except what's interesting about the lipid layer is the lipid layer is um, made up of complex lipids because oil and water don't mix, and the lipid layer has to be uh, completely cohesive and coherent. It has to cover the entire tear film, and the way it does that is through phospholipids, which actually tack the roof down, almost as if you're nailing the roof to the to the structure, uh, you know, nailing the shingles in. And the reason why patients experience um, dry eye symptoms is because the structure fails. We talk a lot about tear film instability, and we now recognize that it's a failure in one or more of those those individual systems that have to coordinate and work together. And the body is very reactive. The body tries to fix that. So, so you know, that's essentially my uh, perception of of the ocular surface environment. You know, now, what are the things that have changed from a clinical point of view? Number one, we have targeted products. We have uh, lipid supplements that have phospholipids, so they're complete supplements which actually glue the tear film in place uh, and make it more cohesive. We actually have uh, viscoelastic bulking agents because the tear film is viscoelastic and has protective qualities. Uh, and uh, w- we have a, a much broader array in the past you know, back in the day, we would basically give people essentially saline, and then it was balanced saline, and then it was saline with methyl cellulose to sort of bulk the tears up, which didn't stick to the cornea and didn't really do very much. We still use that, something, you know, and some some people still do. Uh, I'm not going to get into you know philosophy about specific brands and 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 uh, you know, branded technology, but uh, you can now target specific layers of the tear film and actually supplement them in in, in very effective ways. Uh, and the the other thing is our diagnostic ability. You know, before we would just use a Shermer strip, which really didn't tell you very much. We'd look with a slit lamp, and you wouldn't get an objective reading, uh, measure breakup time, and again, that was very subjective. Uh, Don Corb addressed that years ago with his dry eye test. You uh, flood the cornea, uh, the uh, the uh, anterior eye with fluorescein and then the patient looks like they have no breakup because you have too much fluorescein in. So we have much, much better ways of, of measuring that 
And you know, probably the last and to me the most meaningful and most important thing is a better understanding of meibomian gland dysfunction. And again, I, I invoke the name of Donald Korb. Uh, we recognize that the vast majority of cases are uh, of dry eye, uh, that is, are either caused by primarily or contributed to by meibomian gland dysfunction. Uh, and uh, you know, again, that goes back to technology. We can now address it. You know, there are devices, uh, instruments that can help us manage that, but we can also diagnose right. it much, uh, much yeah. more effectively. Right. Yeah. So the, the the question I have is then, um, you know, stepping back and going back back to the base principles here, how do you actually diagnose dry eye? How do you know where where the dysfunction is actually occurring? Um, it's uh, you know, again a beautiful question. I just had uh, uh, an elderly woman, uh, an elderly woman who uh, who uh, was here this morning. She had Sjogren's syndrome. Be careful and, what you say about uh, elderly; they're getting younger every year. <laughs> exactly. It's, uh, you know, I, I keep seeing my hair, uh, you know, going through stages. It's starting to look like driven snow in some yeah. areas, which I'm reminded of uh, periodically by Shannon, by the way. But. Uh, uh, it, well, she's, she was a very nice uh, young young woman, as, uh, <laughs> as I like to say. And, and uh, she she had seen a, a cornea specialist. She wasn't particularly happy and uh, uh, really severe dry eye, as you can imagine. And I, I sat and spoke with her for a few minutes beforehand. And, and I said, you, you know, part of the problem here is it's very easy to see you as a patient with Sjogren's syndrome, and that means you have aqueous deficiency. But you're not just that. There's a lot more to it. You know, you, you know, live in an environment that is particularly dry. You take medications uh, that have effects on your tear film. You um, have other conditions. You have an evaporative component because you have very little aqueous production. So we have to be very respectful of uh, meibomian gland function because we need to keep that intact. We have to see how your lids function, how your eyes function. So essentially, you have to look at the patient in a holistic fashion and you have to step by step by step analyze the lids and tear function. The reason why we have tears is so we can see. That's the primary reason why we have tears. And the body does everything in its power to maintain a balanced normal tear film so we can see because that way if we see well we can see predators coming and 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 the, the selection process is you know strongly in favor of that. That's how we survive. So you have to sort of go back to that. So you have to focus on uh, the net result, which is to get the patients comfortable in seeing, and then you have to break it down piece by piece. So in her case, um, it, it turned out that she had exposure. Um, she had a poor Bell's phenomenon. Her lids didn't close completely, and that's one of the reasons why she had significant uh, breakdown of tissue in the inferior cornea because it was exposed every night. No one had given her an ointment or had addressed that. Um, she was a partial blinker as well, which made that worse during the day. And again, that's something that you can observe you can even measure it. There's a device called the Lipaview, uh, sold by Tier Science, that actually can quantify uh, partial blinks. And then she had significant meibomian gland dysfunction, and that um, was diagnosed using meibomography, which is um, uh, one of the components of uh, the Oculus Keratograph 5M, which is great. Uh, it uses infrared, and you can literally assess meibomian gland uh, health. Uh, and not only that, use it to educate the patient. So she was able to you know, come along with me on this diagnostic journey. Uh, and I explained every single issue that I saw, came up with a, a game plan for addressing it sequentially. Uh, and um, I think she's going to do just fine. And a lot of this would have been missed without the instrumentation and without that step-by-step-by-step -by -step -by -step approach with this more global understanding that we have today.
Great. So let's actually talk about the keratograph for a second. Um, if you see a patient who's having symptoms of dry eye, walk us through how you might use the device from beginning to end to make your diagnosis and guide your therapy. Well, I have to tell you, I'm a, I'm a gadget freak, and I absolutely love this thing. I mean, it's like it is to me. Um, it, it was like the, the first iPad, um, you know, when I got it. It was so neat. It's so perfect. It's, it's literally an engineering thing of beauty. So from, a, from, you know, from that perspective, um, if you can be in love with a mechanical thing, an electronic thing, I, I, definitely, I definitely have a problem. So um, it's, it's neat. I, I, I just like using it. It does so many things that we couldn't do before. So what I do is I, I have created essentially using the device a dry eye assessment, which is helpful uh, in, number one, determining what uh, specifically the cause of the patient's dry eye is and the severity of the dry eye. Uh, so, for example, the keratograph has an automated... Uh, non-invasive breakup time function. So you literally can take an image of the eye. It uh, monitors cure breakup time using a placido's ring, uh, and it quantifies the instant of breakup plus gives you the severity of breakup on a color map along with the, the temporal qualities of, of that breakup. Uh, and so you basically have this color map which shows you exactly where the tears are breaking up and it shows you exactly how rapidly they break up. You can then show it to the patient and explain how this relates to their discomfort. It also gives you some inkling into why, understanding that breakup can occur either as a function of insufficient lipid, which sort of destroys the cohesivity of the outer layer of the tear film, or in severe cases where you actually can see staining, it has to do with damage to the underlying ultrastructure, if you will. Basically, the, the structure of the cornea becomes damaged and it becomes hydrophobic. Um, so that's, that's one essential element. Mybomography is another element. So you can do mybomography by transillumination, uh, but it's difficult. And certainly you can't share that with a patient. You, you can't really take uh, effective pictures of it not in real time and then turn to the patient and say, um, here are your mybomine lens. This is what they should look like. And this is what your mybomine lens uh, look like now. Uh, and this is what we need to do about it. So you can track it. You get pictures of it. Uh, you can educate the patients with it, which is it's a really neat, easy-to-perform test. Um, there's also a uh, lid, uh, I'm sorry, not lid, the tear meniscus height uh, independent measuring tool. You can actually measure the lacrimal lake. Uh, and what's really nice is these things are quantifiable, so you can go back after treatment and you can uh, follow how well the patient's doing, which is which is nice. So it gives you not only insight as a diagnostician, but insight from a therapeutic point of view. So it's really neat. So you know what we we understand about uh, helping patients comfort, but uh, but why is it so important to have a, a stable tear film from a clinical point well, of view? Well, so so you know I, I often ask. A question, that same question, Paul, and it shows you know that uh, we, we didn't our apples didn't fall far from uh, from the tree of of, of eye wisdom. Uh, why is it important that we have a stable tear film? You know, and and it sort of goes back, I think, to the you know to the point that I made before. Uh, a stable tear film is number one uh, the best way of achieving sharp uh, vision, which affords 
multiple benefits from protective to uh, you know, appreciating the world around you and things of that sort. I mean, those are modern day concerns, but certainly in a primal sense, uh, a stable tear film uh, is, is a tear film that will allow you to see no matter what the situation is. Whoever designed the system realized that uh, there were going to be significant challenges to that stability. So, you know, for example, um, man lives in the Gobi Desert and in Phoenix and lives in Antarctica and lives in Tampa, Florida and lives in Singapore. Uh, and yet man functions in all of those environments. So tear film stability is so important that we develop the whole uh, um, constellation of ways of maintaining tear film stability, both short-term and long-term. You know, for example, we talked about my bone gland function. That's critically important for tear film stability because it prevents evaporation. Uh, modern times, you know, we, we, we're not talking about evolution and, and masses of people moving from continent to continent. Uh, we're talking about people going from the warm, humid outdoors in Tampa into the cool, dry indoors in Tampa within you know two seconds, and the the entire environment shifts you know immediately. Same thing when you get in the car in the winter, you turn on the heater, it blows and your eye dries out. But yet, you know most patients still see well enough to drive. They still function uh, in office buildings. You know despite the, the variation, they go out and they can order food. Uh, you know outside. Uh, you know sitting in a restaurant in high humidity, and then go back in the office and you know and and, and address work. And so tear film stability is absolutely critical for that. Uh, because without stability, without those those mechanisms, those active mechanisms to maintain stability, we'd be non-functional with even minor environmental shifts. Uh, the problem is when the system gets out of whack, and uh, and that's when patients get into trouble, and then they begin to have symptoms and and, and signs of, of of distress. But but you know, but from a clinical point of view, uh, wouldn't the uh, the contact lens practitioner and the cataract surgeon and the refractive surgeon be intimately interested in this tear film problem? Oh, absolutely. In fact, you know, it's, you hit the nail right on the head. The first description of my bombing gland dysfunction, which really is one of the major contributors to tear film instability, was Corb. You know, Corb, in, uh, I, I think it was 1980. Um, coined the term meibomian gland dysfunction, and he associated it with contact lens intolerance. And today, where um, our ophthalmologic colleagues, who once were completely ignorant of optics, now understand optics uh, and higher order aberrations, they could probably design lenses to correct the Hubble telescope. Uh, you know, they're certainly very concerned about tear film stability uh, because they're putting in premium IOLs, and every little, you know tiny improvement in vision uh, becomes important uh, for for their patients. And, you know, again, it goes back to it, where does the rubber meet the road? It's the interface uh, between the tear film and the air. Uh, and if you have a tear film that's unstable and irregular and corneal tissue is exposed or the tear film comes and goes in terms of its stability, patients not going to see well and not going to see consistently and then they don't appreciate all of the skill and, and, and cost of uh, some of these advanced technologies. And the same with us in consequences. You know, an unhappy patient is an unhappy patient. It doesn't matter if your prescription is off or uh, they have a gland dysfunction and, uh, you know, their tear film's unstable. Right. 
you know, you mentioned uh, making the diagnosis using the keratograph. What about, you know, once you've made that diagnosis, um, let's talk about treatment just for a second. I know we don't have much time, um, but what do you see on the horizon in terms of treatment for dry eye? Well, you know, it's it's, it's actually interesting. Um, dry eye is such a, a, a an unusual an unusual place. Well, some well some some of the things that I've learned over the last couple of years, um, and I should say last couple of years, last two years, say, uh, are that we have some very very effective products that work reasonably well uh, under certain conditions, and that there's more to dry eye than meets the eye. So, um, you know, for example. Uh, with my bony gland dysfunction, which I've been treating, you know, since the uh, I'd say probably early 90s, you know, when I first recognized it as an as an entity, or maybe even late 80s, um, I used to prescribe warm compresses and lid massage. I still do, uh, but I know that uh, that you cannot get enough heat to melt congealed saturated my bone by applying heat from the outside without risking burning the patient's lids without a lot of time. And, and even then, it doesn't work well. And in fact, Corb has shown that very nicely. So there is a device um, called the Lipaflow, which actually addresses that. And uh, I think um, listeners are probably familiar with that technology. It's uh, becoming much more popular. So that's certainly a major advance, that and a recognition that my bone mingling dysfunction is, is a major issue. Uh, we now have um, tear film supplements that are actually targeted to different areas. You know, for example, uh, we have some of the older um, cellulose-based products that I alluded to before. Cellulose is hydrophilic. It really doesn't stick very well to a hydrophilic, so it's not useful for patients who have advanced disease. We do have products um, that do stick to the surface of the cornea quite well that have hydrophobic ends or elements in their in their formulation. Uh, Sustain Ultra would be a great example of that. It actually bonds to hydroxypropylene, will bond to areas that are damaged and sort of create an artificial mucin-like uh, structure. Um, we have uh, uh, new uh, understandings of how to use steroids, which is very gingerly. Uh, so that certainly has helped some patients that have inflammatory dry eye. Uh, and uh, Shire Pharmaceuticals is now uh, about to, I think they're not far away from uh, releasing a new product, uh, which hopefully will be the first approved since uh, Restasis was uh, probably about 10 years ago. Uh, and there are a whole host of products that are in the pipeline that I think will address that will address this. But uh, you know, again, I, I think the biggest advance at this point is our understanding of my bone gland dysfunction and 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 managing it. Right. So I guess. Let's get to where the rubber meets the road here. You know, you have been described as having a very successful so-called dry eye center um, where, where you've actually become the go-to place for the treatment of dry eye. Now, for, for all of our listeners out there, maybe you could step us through how someone might want to set up a dry eye center of their very own, if possible. <laughs> yeah, but you know, you know, it's funny. It's... Um, this was sort of a passion of mine all along. That was my that was my thinking from day one, and I've I've been very fortunate to um, have uh, had a number of of mentors that have been very influential in my development. And you know, Donald Core being a, a you know one of the you know best examples of that. Ralph Stone, uh, who is uh, a chemist who worked for Alcon for years, really just expanded my understanding of the, of the chemistry of, of dry eye and dry eye products, uh, and 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 a, and a number of others. Eric Donnefeld, Hank Perry. Uh, 
uh, Gary folks, uh, I, you know, I, I certainly uh, look up to the, the, to the Nichols. You know, they're very inspirational. And I realized that everything was moving in this direction. Our understanding was getting better. My understanding was getting much better. When it came time to open the office, I said uh, to Shannon, you know, this is really my passion. I want to focus primarily on that. And in fact, I even debated whether or not to do specialty contact lenses, which we ended up you know, sort of incorporating as well. As, as you guys know, that was our passion back in uh, back in the day in New York. Uh, so essentially establishing the dry eye clinic, uh, uh, outfitting it with the proper uh, equipment, um, you know, for everything from the, the keratograph, which was a, you know, we were looking for a topographer. When I saw what this could do, uh, I immediately gravitated towards that, that uh, keratograph cam, uh, of uh, 5M rather, uh, because it was dry eye centric. We will be incorporating shortly uh, lip of flow, lip of view system. Uh, I'd say we're probably a month or two away from that. We're just uh, waiting for our patient volume to uh, you know catch up, uh, and all of the other accoutrements of a dry eye practice was easy to put in place. Now the problem is, you know, it's not like. Uh, uh, if you build it, they will come. You not only have to build it, but you have to figure out how to get them to come. Well, the first uh, thing I had, which was great, was Shannon already had a presence in Phoenix uh, and had uh, a significant patient population that suffered from dry eye. And uh, she was generously willing to uh, minimize, uh, you know, although we share, you know, many patients and she is heavily involved in managing dry eye, uh, we partner on it. We work together, which, uh, you know, is, is great. Uh, so we've, I've sort of accumulated a, a, a fair number of severe patients um, that came from the existing patient population. Um, for my colleagues that are, have existing practices, they just have to look and see Number one, they probably already have a significant patient population. Um, number two, they have to identify many of the patients that they're missing. You know, we used to talk about allergy and say, uh, you know, that a uh, significant percentage, you know, 40-some-odd percent of the patients sitting in your waiting room have allergies and only a fraction of them are being treated by you, um, even though 80% have eye allergies. It's even more so with dry eye. Patients think it's just aging. Patients think it's you know just normal, you know for whatever. It's you know it's uh, the environment, and the truth is there's a tremendous opportunity to improve patient quality of life. Literally sitting uh, in the office, so you need to identify them. And again, uh, you know diagnostic workups, screening uh, techniques do work. Um, so that's that's another thing. And, and once uh, you're willing to commit to that once you recognize that you have that population and it's an unmet medical need that, that these patients are underserved, you really have to invest the time and effort to understand um, the dynamics and literally, and no pun intended, immerse yourself in, in dry eye and ocular surface disease. You have to be able to look at a Sjogren's patient and realize that it's more than just aqueous deficiency. You need to break it down, as we talked about before. Uh, and once you do that and begin to develop more and more expertise, the dry eye center begins to evolve word of mouth, patients to other patients. Um, another thing that's important is web presence. We have a specific website, uh, Dry Center of Arizona. I think that's been very, very helpful. We've networked with other colleagues around the country, which has been very, very helpful. Uh, we're not the only ones. There are a lot of people who are doing this um, 
with the advent of the lipoflow uh, system, there are dry eye centers of excellence scattered around. In fact, this was a concept that uh, uh, Dave Sattler at Alcon had come up with years ago, dry eye center of excellence. It's now really beginning to uh, take hold. I think we've just taken it to uh, maybe a little bit more intense level. Yeah, you know, uh, as someone that uh, built a specialty practice, uh, I've always felt that professional referrals is the lifeblood of a specialty practice in addition to patient referrals. So my question is, in addition to eye care professionals, which I assume uh, have the word out, are you reaching out to any other healthcare professionals uh, where they will have dry-eyed patients? Absolutely. In fact, that's that's on our agenda. You know, one of the, the biggest problems that, that, that I have is that um, in fact, it's really a problem that Shannon and I share. We both have other lives, and we, we discovered that um, the practice didn't understand that or respect it. So, uh, you know, I'm still traveling and still, you know, speaking and consulting and looking in a lot of these practice buildings. I'm sure, uh, Paul, you had an, an amazing practice in New York. You literally built, you know, one of the premier practices in the world, and uh, you did it largely with relationships with uh, colleagues, uh, you know, tremendous referral base uh, and uh, patient referrals. And so you know exactly how hard that is and how much time and effort it takes to do that. So, uh, you know, we're doing it and uh, we're, we're literally staging it, you know, slowly. Uh, and, and Shannon's at the university two days a week. Uh, so she's, you know, someone and she loves teaching. So, you know, it's very difficult for her to, to break away from that, even though the office continues to get busier. Uh, and uh, so what's happened is we've actually put some of those um, practice building strategies. I, I don't want to say on the back burner because that's not accurate. We we do get referrals. We certainly have reached out to you know, primary care physicians in the area, so they're aware. Uh, and that segment is starting to grow. But we're doing it more slowly than I think most people would who were primarily focused in, in practice and didn't have a lot of other uh, balls in the air. Sure. You know, uh, I, I'm just thinking off the top of my head here, just sit, sitting around, just listening, uh, that rheumatologists would be wonderful to reach. But more important, plastic surgeons, where after they do the job and you check the patients for nocturnal lagophthalmus, they're, they're, they sleep with their eyes open, where I'm, I'm certain that they are, are having dry eye problems. So this uh, should be an issue. Well, that was that was a definite issue in Rosslyn. Uh, in fact, we just had this just had this <laughs> we had this conversation with, with in fact with, with a patient this morning about uh, how uh, New York and uh, California, the epicenter of uh, exposure from overzealous uh, plastic surgeons, <laughs> they don't don't bother to check dose phenomena, and they don't realize that. Um, the uh, patient does not need to see at night, <laughs> so their eyes can, can actually can actually close. So, but uh, uh, the, yeah, you're exactly you're exactly right. And, and, and frankly, you know what? When you said it, it's probably not a bad uh, a bad thing to try not to be insulting, but maybe a little bit of an educational uh, uh, an educational uh, system. Although we do have a couple of family plastic surgeons and. Uh, in uh, Arizona. In fact, one of them was a resident that I worked with uh, years ago who uh, is a great, great atomic plastics guy. So there, there are, that's probably one of the best things about uh, Arizona. There's not, there's only one neuro-ophthalmologist, I believe, maybe two at this point in uh, all of Arizona. Uh, but uh, we do have a couple of atomic plastics guys. 
you know, Art, I got a question for you off the top of my head, too. You know, I'm not that old, kind of old, right? Just a little bit presbyopic. But um, I know back when I went to medical school, things like topographers really were not common in optometric offices or even in medical practices. And in fact, topography is almost like black magic to most GPs that you see out there. So I'm sort of wondering, when you go out and, and reach out to professionals, what do they think? about the tools that you have at your disposal now? Do you have to educate them about it, or is this something that they just take for granted? Well, well, that's, you know, that's a great point. I, you know, in the beginning, I, you know, I remember we adopted uh, a topographer fairly, fairly early. I, at first, I resisted, you know. Uh, I, uh, you know, was curmudgeon-like and goes, ah, who needs that? I can just put on a spherical lens and look at the fluorescein pattern. Uh, you know, it's like, and I quickly uh, developed uh, an appreciation for it because it really was so much easier and so much faster. And back in those days, having a you were an odd bird. Very few people had them. I still think they're certainly uh, underutilized. I, I think that less people own topographers than should, because it's such a critically important instrument for differential diagnosis of, of um, visual loss and, and uh, surface integrity and a whole host of, of, especially in this day and age of, of refractive surgery and premium ILLs. So you really need to understand the, the surface. Uh, but I, I, most people, I think, on understand topography, certainly in the eye care community. Uh, I think uh, outside the eye care community, I think you're right. I think people don't quite understand that. They, they, they understand the basic concepts because you know, they're used to MRIs, they're used to you know, CT, uh, so they understand tomography. So you can, you can actually send them uh, an OCT or, or reference an OCT, they'll understand that. And when you describe topography in a, in a referral note, if you do it carefully, I think they get it. So not, not, not as bad. I think people are more tech savvy than they were in the past. Sure. So the, 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 now the, the hard question, and you better just limit it to uh, the topic at hand because you, this could go on for hours. Is there anything you would have done differently? But let's not talk about life now, only about dry eyes. Anything differently going into uh, practice, into the dry uh, eye practice? No, no actually, in, you know, in this, in this practice – you know, it's funny. I, I, you know, it, it, it's an interesting thing. I've told my kids. You know, I, as you probably know, I do a lot of a lot of flying. Although I, I've gone cut back a little bit, so this year I won't be uh, executive platinum on American and chairman's preferred uh, simultaneously on U.S. Air. And that's like uh, last year I flew like 240,000 miles. So this year I'll, I'll I'll probably come in at about uh, 150, 160. So I, I know it's just, you know, that risk is independent, but it's also cumulative. So I've told both of my kids, listen, um, I just want you to know that if anything ever happens to me, I have had an absolutely amazing ride. I certainly would have changed a lot of things, but um, of the things that I didn't, my experiences, I never dreamed that I travel all over the world and make friends. I just reached out to an old friend in Japan that I saw on Facebook last night that I hadn't uh, spoken to in a couple of years, uh, you know, who I last had uh, uh, tempura in Tokyo with probably seven or eight years ago. And so I've, I've just, optometry has been phenomenal. I've, as a, a poor kid growing up in the Bronx, I never in a million years would have expected to have all these experiences. So um, I've had a great ride, so I have no regrets. And uh, if, I, if I disappear tomorrow, 
Um, you know, I certainly don't want to because I, I enjoy being here too much, but um, it certainly uh, it certainly has been great. Now, as far as the drive well, practice don't, goes, don't disappear. I, Who's going to get your frequent flyer miles? You <laughs> <laughs> well, as, as I've discovered, um, your wife typically does. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't discover it through oh, death. I it another one, but that was a negotiation. But that's a, another. It's another New York story, which uh, we won't get into. Uh, in fact, I, I think I'm open. Well, forget that. Myself. And then the other thing I've learned is sometimes not to say everything that comes to my mind. It's hard, but it's uh, but I'm you're trying. Learning, right? uh, you, you now have a wife to learning. control you, right? <laughs> well, she's she's been a great influence on me. She's uh, she has been the, the best addition uh, that I could possibly think of. And so right. she's 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 absolutely phenomenal, and she's a phenomenal clinician. She's uh, so the best thing is I get the best eye care in the world. <laughs> so, it's like so I it kills two birds with one stone. You know, so great. I, uh, I don't have a wife that's a phenomenal clinician, but she's a phenomenal cook. So we got. Ah, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Well, we, <laughs> I don't know which is more important. Yeah, I, so. <laughs> well, it, at this point, it's probably you know. At this point, I don't need to eat any more salt. I'm happy with the clinician. <laughs> so we're, to we're just other. about out of time. My gosh, where'd the hour go? Uh, but anyway, you, know, you have a final words of wisdom for us. Anything you'd like to uh, pass on about yeah, dry yeah. eyes? Go for it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so to, to, to finally answer your question, this practice, I wouldn't change a thing. I absolutely love it. It's just great. I may even, we may even expand it. That would be the only caveat. Uh, the, the one word of it was one word of, of advice. And, and I don't know if it's wisdom, but it's certainly, you know, my perspective is when you have friends like you, Paul, and, and I mean this sincerely, uh, when you have people to emulate and model people that are excellent in their own right, uh, it makes it so much easier for you to, to, to become better. And if you always strive to have every day where you learn something, every day where you help someone, every day where you can make a difference in someone's life, and you surround yourself with people like you, and I was fortunate I had Norm Hafner as a role model uh, when I was uh, you know, in school, and again, some of the people I've mentioned, uh, uh, Don Corb and Ralph Stone and a host of others. I have been so blessed with uh, people that I look up to and respect that have taken the time to answer my sometimes stupid questions, educate me, and elevate me. That uh, it, it sort of makes me feel obligated to to do the same, you know, for others. And you know, uh, I'm a great believer in paying forward, and what goes around comes around. And those two things, I think, drive all of us to do the right thing. And you know, frankly, I know you know you've sacrificed to do the right thing. Uh, so, um, you know, if I could, if I can give one piece of advice, be nice to everyone. <laughs> be kind. It's, it's, it's sometimes tough out there. Right. Okay. Well, with those thoughts, Adam, anything? I, this has been a really, really great hour. And Art, I hope that uh, once folks listen to this on ODYR, perhaps we can keep the conversation going on the site and maybe you could uh, even follow up uh, on the site as well. Okay. I'd love to. You guys do a phenomenal job. Thank you for this, and, and thank you for giving so many people a voice on ODYR. I think it's so important. You guys are great. Oh, thanks, Art. Thanks, Art. All right, and I guess thanks, everyone, for tuning in, and we will see you all online.